Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to the last concurrent session post-lunch. I hope it's not too, uh, uh, what's the word, soporific. <laughs> um, I, uh, my, my name is on, on the, um, the top of this, uh, the title slide, um, but not that I've actually done any work. Um, all I did was organize three very esteemed and, and renowned colleagues to do all the work and to come and present to you. Um, and it's really kind of building on a theme of what Joe spoke about yesterday. Um, and I think we're kind of starting to get some momentum on this, um, on, you know, how do, we, how do we translate this difficult concept of pension projections through to members? What ways can, can we look at to do that? Um, and um, so I think without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Costa to start take us through. Good afternoon, everybody. I think the best thing about this session is that they've got a, a podium here that I can actually look over and <laughs> see the audience. <laughs> it's unlike other, other sessions that I've uh, previously spoken at. I'm going to lay the foundation um, for, the, for the topic uh, that will be discussed today. Um, what I actually don't know how to do is move through to the next slide. Um, uh, is there? <laughs> uh, Okay. I didn't see the big green button that I could. <laughs> um, so I've just got some introductory comments, and I think we'll probably start off with um, a, few, a few questions. And it's really just to focus our attention to um, what we as actuaries or as a profession have um, uh, really done in the defined contribution space. So um, I know that you've all got access to this app, and there are a couple of questions that are, you know, they're simple yes or no uh, questions. Um, and I'd like to just gauge your responses to these questions. The first, the first question or the first comment I make um, is that, um, you know, do we believe actuaries have fully applied their skill sets to define contribution schemes and that the legislation does not allow us to do more? Uh, simple yes or no answer. Okay, well, should we just do it with a show of hands? I think it might be easier, just in the interest of time. Let's revert to the technology we all are familiar with <laughs> and that we know works. So just by a show of hands, um, do you think that actuaries have fully applied their skill sets? Yes. Who says yes? Okay. Not a single one of you in the audience believes that uh, as actuaries we've fully applied our, our skill sets in the defined contribution schemes. I must say I completely concur with that. Um, uh, the next question, I believe actuaries are grossly underutilized in DC schemes and their function is merely one of an audit and reconciliation service. Who believes that that's the case? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, that's a fair comment. About two-thirds of you believe that. Um, and thirdly, I believe actuaries should play a far deeper role in defined contribution schemes and more so enable such schemes to help their members achieve a good retirement outcome. Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, th I think as, as a profession, we do have um, an objective of serving the public interest. And I'm not so sure that in the defined contribution space we've in fact done this. Um, there was an article written by Professor Robert Merton a few years ago that was, that was presented at the Harvard Business Review. Um, and he spoke about a retirement industry that's in crisis. And I have to say that I think in South Africa, um, um, it really is a crisis. I mean, you look at the stats of people retiring. We've, we've been in the defined contribution sort of environment now for about 25 years. And, and we've got the stat that keeps, get, get, you know, keeps getting thrown around that more than 95% of people retiring are retiring on grossly inadequate levels of income. Um, 
you know, the, the decisions that are being made both pre-retirement as well as at the point of retirement are, are obviously decisions that are not in keeping with what they need in order to sustain themselves in their post-retirement post um, income years. Now, if this is a, an industry that we're serving as actuaries, and, and we have that as a metric. That's our KPI, I believe. And, and I think we fail dismally if, if, if this is a metric that we are measuring ourselves against. Um, if you look at the debates that are taking place at trustee boards, my sense is that those debates are focusing on the wrong issues. Um, things like member investment choice. Is it active management? Is it passive management? You know, the choice of asset manager, the choice of consultant, actuary, administrator. Um, very little attention is, in fact, given, I believe, to the real issue that trustees should be facing with. Um, you know, what retirement benefits are our members likely to retire on, um, and what is it that we need to do as a board to, in fact, achieve that? You know, how, do we, how are we best placed to basically get to that point? Of course, this is not a uniquely South African problem. I think if you look at globally, um, people retiring out of defined contribution schemes uh, are faced with a similar, a similar problem. In fact, Professor Merton's article um, you know, showcases many examples across the globe of people retiring with grossly inadequate levels of income. Here in South Africa, though, the problem is exacerbated because our core retirement benefits sit in this DC pot. Um, if you look at um, other places like the US, Canada, the UK, there are legacy-defined benefit arrangements, there's social security arrangements that you know, act as, as, as um, underlying buffers to basically take away some of the pain that these folk are feeling. Here in South Africa, it's just this DC pot that we're relying on, and unfortunately, this DC pot is not adequate. Of course, we know that we've come from a defined benefit world, and nobody says that defined benefit was perfect. It certainly was not perfect for South Africa, given our own sort of issues. Um, but defined benefit funds became very complex to run and very expensive to run for employers. Um, you know, they, they have access to consultants, they have access to um, expert advisors, actuaries like yourselves, um, and yet they couldn't manage the problem. We've shifted that responsibility across to members, expecting them to basically take on this challenge, and I don't believe given them enough information, enough tools um, for them to actually make those decisions appropriately and ensure that when they do get to retirement, they retire comfortably. Our communication is focused on stuff that I don't think is meaningful. You know, it's obviously useful to get a statement once every quarter or once every year that showcases your fund balance, um, tells you how the investment returns have performed. But at the end of the day, this is really just a number. Um, it's no different to me going to um, the doctor. I recently went to the doctor. I got myself medically assessed. The doctor tells me, Costa, your cholesterol level sitting at 7.2. I didn't take that and walk out the door um, because 7.2 is merely a number. It has no context for me. Um, what the doctor says to me is that 7.2 at your age is like clinically dead. You need, what you need to do is you need to basically get yourself uh, onto a program. You know, I've put on a bit of weight, uh, hair's grown long, stress, you know. Um, uh, you need to put yourself onto a proper routine, a proper regime, eat more legumes, cut meat, etc. get yourself down to a level of four. The point is that that number of 7.2 has no relevance to me other than knowing that the right number should be four and what I need to do to get to four um, are various intervention strategies. I need to take on various intervention strategies. It's the same thing with a retirement balance. If you give a member a value of 300,000, what does that really mean to this individual? The obsession becomes quite short-termistic. The obsession is around investment performance and how they've done relative to some other peers. But there's no measure. There's nothing that tells them as to whether or not that number is adequate or what they need to have in order to get to a point where they can actually retire comfortably. 
Um, also, the measure of risk is wrong. I mean, we, we communicate things like standard deviations, information ratios. The average member doesn't understand those statistics. Um, those are statistics that are actually completely meaningless. Um, so I'm not so sure that we've defined risk in the appropriate manner. I think if you talk to members that belong to DC schemes, risk is a measure of volatility, and that's what they've been accustomed to. And that's not necessarily the right measure. Um, it's, it's probably the wrong measure. Um, and of course, what that has is implications for the investment strategy that is then taken on. So are actually seen as key players in the defined contribution fund industry? Um, very quick question, um, by show of hands. Are we just simply overpaid benefit consultants? You guys don't think you're overpaid benefit consultants. <laughs> okay. um, uh, have actuaries moved across mostly into the investment consulting space? I'm talking about the retirement fund world that, as, as we know it today. No. So you're all in the benefit consulting space predominantly. Does the legislation enable or disable our skill sets? Yes or no? Yes. No. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do you answer this question? <laughs> the issue is this, I think. Um, you know, when you measure a liability as merely a fund pot or a fund credit, okay, and against that you've got an asset, you know, um, what is it that us as actuaries are really doing? You know, um, you know is, is, is a liability really the fund credit? That's what the legislators have defined it to be. That's what the rules of our funds define it to be. Um, so I, don't, I actually don't believe we've done enough in terms of you know, rallying government and making sure that this definition of liability is an appropriate definition. Um, I also don't believe, and I've, I mean, I've asked the question, but I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me. I don't think that we've actually um, uh, demonstrated our skill sets adequately enough to government and the Financial Services Board in terms of what we should be doing for members. You know, we typically wait for these things to come to us. We don't, I don't know that we've done enough to actually rally what we think we should be doing to ensure the right outcomes uh, take place. So how can we change this perception? How can, you know, as actuaries, how can we get more stuck in and more involved in this particular area? I think the first thing is around the advice that we give our, our trustee boards. Um, you know, when, we, when we're focusing our advice to these boards, I think our focus should be on ensuring that their members retire um, with a good retirement. How do you measure good retirement? Um, I believe that the right measure for good retirement is a standard of living. You know, if you can, if you can help members achieve a certain standard of living, um, then that person has achieved a good retirement. And, and if you look at any, um, you know, uh, historical retirement um, setup, uh, any system, it always is with, with reference to um, income. I mean, defined benefit funds targeted uh, income benefits, social security structures target income benefits. So when you're measuring a standard of living, income should be the right measure that you achieve standard of income with or that you measure standard of income with. And if that's the right measure, then surely that should be the goal that retirement funds should basically be aiming for. So as actuaries, when we're talking about helping our members retire uh, with a good retirement, it's ensuring that our members retire with the right level of income at retirement as opposed to anything else. I think this obsession on this, on this fund balance is completely pointless. In fact, what it does, I believe, is that it often encourages some perverse behavior. If you are servicing a whole lot of debt outside of the retirement system and you get a statement that comes to you and it says you've got 400,000 rand sitting in a, in a, in a fund credit um, that you can access if you resign, 
well, what, are the, what is the member going to do if they're in dire straits? Of course they're going to resign. And I think that, that actually does take place. And of course the communication that goes back to them um, doesn't necessarily explain to them the consequences of them in cashing that benefit and not preserving. So I think if we're focusing our attention on incomes as opposed to these fund balances, I believe that um, you know, that perverse behavior can be avoided. I'm not suggesting that you don't show the, the retirement value or the, the, the benefit value. It's something that legislatively we have to show, but the focus shouldn't be on that. It should rather be on the income and how the income has changed from period to period. Um, I think from a legislative point of view, um, my feeling is that we should be talking to um, uh, the, the legislators about focusing attention on that. When communication is taking place, the communication should be around the level of income that can be achieved. Um, to the extent that people can't achieve that level of income, what interventions can take place in order to achieve that? Um, and I think that is language that members understand. You know, if you're contributing an extra 500 rand a month and you can change your income from, let's say, 10,000 rand today in today's terms to 11,000 rand, that's a trade-off that you understand as a member, as opposed to saying to the individual, you know, contributing an extra 4% might change your post-retirement replacement ratio as a percentage of pensionable salary from 62% to 66%, as an example. I don't think people understand that concept. It's, it's completely unfamiliar to them, and I don't believe um, we're actually doing our members any justification in showing them that. If, in, if anything, what we're doing is confusing them, creating more apathy, um, and almost a, a complete disinterest in terms of what this real issue is. Um, obviously, this approach, when you're focusing on income and protection of income, has implications for the investment strategy that is adopted. Um, and the key thing here is what risk you're being measured against. So what is the risk of this particular um, benefit not being achieved? If, if risk is defined as the risk of not achieving that income benefit, then your risk-free asset takes on a very different form. It won't be cash. Um, and unfortunately, that's the vast majority of, of um, investment structures that are in place at the moment. The risk-free asset is defined as cash. We're almost funding for a cash benefit at, at the point of retirement. Um, and because the obsession has been around risk being measured as standard deviation. So the risk-free asset in that particular context will be standard deviation. So if, if, if income is the target, then your risk-free asset is a, is a different, is a different um, uh, underlying asset. Of course, what this means is that for new members getting into the system, um, I think it's okay. But for existing folk, people that have not preserved, people that are much older, have been in the system, let's say, quite late on, have not necessarily accumulated enough, they don't have the right level of income or the right level of asset to fund that particular income goal. But I'd sooner communicate that they've got a problem as opposed to leaving it too late and ensuring that they can at least do something to try and rectify or remedy their particular, their particular um, circumstance. So I guess, I guess the takeaway from my sort of introduction is I think that um, we focused our attention in communicating the wrong, the wrong goals. Um, if, we, if we change the focus to communicating income targets as opposed to um, fund balances, I think the whole mindset changes. Um, it has implications for the investment strategy, but those are secondary implications. The starting point always is communicating the right message. And hopefully with that, um, you get the right behavior that then follows. So I'll, I'll hand over to Neil, who will then take us through some of the assumption sets around communicating those income levels. Yeah, thanks, Costa. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I think Costa touched or covered quite, to some, quite a well extent, the 
what should be communicated and how we communicate to individuals. And, and it has been a topic of discussion at previous conferences as well in the past. And I think while probably not purely an actuarial topic, it is definitely something we can get involved a little bit more um, going forward. And, and, I, and I see this one of the various aspects that we need to work on on this journey to get to a place where we can communicate to individuals what their retirement outcomes will be, what they can expect in a way that they can understand and they can actually take action based on that information. Um, something that I focused on a little bit more myself is the um, retirement projections themselves. So as actuaries, um, you know, that's something that we can really get our hands dirty in and you know, get involved in building these models to provide retirement outcomes to individuals. And the, the analysis I did was really, it started off just for my own curiosity. Um, there's something that really didn't, it makes sense to me mathematically, but from a common sense point of view, it didn't quite sit well with me, is this whole thing where a replacement ratio will reduce with a higher than expected salary income. Um, common sense would say, well, your retirement income should also increase because you know your contributions in the future should be high and you should be better off. And obviously the, the counter to that is that your standard of living increases, and if you take a guy a year before retirement, 100% salary increase, basically he doubles up on his lifestyle and his retirement savings can't keep up. So what I'm going to share with you is just a few interesting analyses. Um, I think it's the, the, the aim is really to get you thinking about some of these aspects. Um, I'm not at all um, propagating one approach above another, anything like that. It's really just to get, get our mindsets going around the various issues that do impact on retirement um, projections and you know, to get a better understanding of, of how big these, um, these various things are. And really, I'm just going to talk about an individual years away from retirement and he gets a retirement projection, whether it be benefit statements, an online tool, financial advisor, whatever the case may be. And I'm really going to start focusing on just the investment return and the salary increase assumptions and the, and the impact of these two. So to start off with, um, just so that we're all on the same page, I've got a few definitions. So gross salary is just the salary before deductions, net salary being gross salary, less, less retirement fund contributions. So the only difference between those two is the retirement fund contributions. Um, and then similarly defining gross replacement ratio and net replacement ratio also being the difference, um, the contributions um, just before retirement. For simplicity, I just ignored all the other deductions and tax and things like that. The results of the analysis, the message that comes across is more important than the detail of these other deductions. And after um, Jana's session yesterday, I think maybe a good starting point is just to get a common set of definitions so that when we start talking to each other, um, you know, we're all talking the same language. She also had a very valid um, set of definitions. So to start off with, on, on the investment return side, there's basically two arguments one can have. The one would be, we, are, we can only count on risk-free returns. Outperformance we recognize as it is realized, and it shouldn't be included in the um, retirement projection model. Second argument would be that you know, you kind of expect outperformance from a growth strategy, so ideally you should take that into account in your retirement projections as well. Now, any pensions actually has been in the industry for more than 10 years will have deja vu on this, because this is very much the same kind of argument we had on um, when we moved on DB funds to a best estimate and a solvency basis, and what should be the return assumption on a best estimate basis. Again, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong in this one, but I will look at the two um, in a few scenarios, and then we can get a better idea of, of the implications. 
What is quite interesting is that we can follow a similar argument for salary increases and say, well, consider only inflationary salary increases. Anything above that, it's not guaranteed. Well, inflationary increases these days aren't guaranteed at all either. But, you know, career progression for everyone will be different. You can't take that into account up front and should not be included. So salary increases equal to inflation, and there you go. Now, um, as any actually who's done any kind of DB work or retirement projections would know, it's actually the margin between these two um, assumptions that really drives the retirement projections, yes and no. Um, so, yes, it does drive the replacement ratio that you calculate, but that's not where the story ends. Um, in this table, very simply, two columns for the two salary increase assumptions being inflationary and inflationary plus 2% for merit increases, and then two investment return assumptions being inflation plus 2% as a proxy for, for risk-free, and then inflation plus 4% to allow for growth. This is for an individual 40 years away from retirement contributing around 17% um, of his salary. Now, immediately what strikes me is the large variance that we have in this table. Um, and I think this is actually, while we, we'd like to con communicate the level of variance in retirement projections, it could actually be to our detriment as well. Because any individual who looks at these four numbers is going to say, well, it's not credible at all. 49% versus 121%. I, I don't trust anything further that you communicate to me. And, and, and I think that is a real hurdle that we'll need to overcome as well. We, we need to have credibility in, in what we communicate to, um, to the individual. What I then did is say, okay, well, this individual is currently earning 100,000. I'm, for the sake of simplicity, ignoring the impact of inflation. So what would his projected salary be and his projected pension? Now, left top, you've got a replacement ratio of 76% plus 75, and bottom right, also 75% replacement ratio. The margin is 2% between the two assumptions, and you would expect those to be the same. But, but what do you communicate to the individual? If for this individual currently earning 100,000, if you communicate to him that your projected pension is 165,000, guarantee you he's going to drop his contribution rate. It's more than he needs compared to his current salary, and you know what, so I'm just going to drop it down to 8% and, and go from there. That's not quite the kind of action that we want. And, and I think what I'm trying to illustrate with this is that we just need to be very cognizant of the information that we're communicating to the individual when we set these assumptions. Now, a way around it would be to say just multiply 75% times the current salary and, you know, that's what, that relative to your current salary, that is what you can expect at retirement. But effectively, you're just moving to the top left um, quadrant. So, no real, um, it's, it's no real impact from that point of view on the assumptions that you make at the end of the day. If we do take that individual at the bottom right-hand corner, he drops his contribution rates and every year he's trying to play catch-up now. So he gets that salary increase of in salary, uh, inflation plus 2%, and as a result, his target uh, pension at retirement is also increasing by 2% every year. And you can see quite quickly his contribution rate starts ramping up. The older ages quite significantly, and they're actually playing a lot of catch-up to get, get um, to that 75% gross replacement ratio. I kept it at 35% contribution rate, because anything more than that, the graph just becomes unreadable. Um, and his projected gross replacement ratio also increases, but then, you know, when you can't increase the contribution rate anymore, that's where it ends up. And what is quite interesting is he actually ends up short of that 75% um, gross replacement ratio target. So this is just an illustration of, 
you know, the impact of the assumptions that we use in what we communicate to individuals and how they can potentially um, apply that information. The, the second part of what I looked at um, involves the same individual. His target net replacement ratio is 91%. I use that simply because it translates to a gross replacement ratio of 75% um, at age 25. A lot of more research needs to go into exactly what that um, replacement ratio target should be, but this is a good, um, good starting point. Um, so projections are provided to the individual with a real margin of 2%, and actual investment return that he earned was inflation plus 4%. What I then did was say, okay, so let's use salary increases 1% higher and 1% lower than the um, margin of 2% and see what, what is the outcome for this individual. Um, and granted, it gets a bit technical, but, but just bear with me because the message at the end, I think, would be quite clear. So targeting a gross replacement ratio, this is basically what will happen to this individual. Um, the, the margin in reality is 3%, so their projected replacement ratio will increase every year, and as a result, they can afford to reduce their contribution rate. Close to retirement, about three years away, the contribution rate is pretty much zero. Um, and what we can also see on this graph, I hope the green line is fairly clear, but he's actually, by reducing his contribution rate, subsidizing his salary increases. So it starts off at around about 1%. The additional contribution rate doesn't make that a big impact on his retirement um, outcome, but it ramps up to more than inflation plus 2%. Then what happens to his projected gross replacement ratio, but more important to lead to his net replacement ratio, um, so, as one would expect, blue line remains flat. He's targeting a gross replacement ratio of 75%. But what is quite important here is that as the contribution rate decreases, the net replacement ratio starts getting closer and closer to the gross replacement ratio. When the contribution rate is zero, obviously the two are equivalent, and you know, that's where the, the, um, the two lines merge. And what is quite interesting from this graph is even though this individual subsidized their salary increases because they're targeting a gross replacement ratio, in the end, they actually ended up short of that 91% net replacement ratio. So basically, pre-retirement, they benefited a bit, and then at retirement, they're actually worse off than they, what they would have been uh, wanting. Similarly, if um, actually salary increases were slightly higher than expected, one would have a similar situation where they, actually this individual overshoots their, overshoots their target. Now, bear in mind, I'm talking about an individual actually looks at their retirement outcome every year, which is quite rare occurrence in the industry already. But what would happen if we start targeting net replacement ratios? Most funds these days, they target a gross replacement ratio. It's what they know, that's what they're used to, and that's what they, um, they are. You know, it's just kind of a comfort zone. They've never really questioned it. Um, but, but basically, the aim of using a net replacement ratio target is to smooth the net income, whether that be through salary increases or at retirement through retirement income. The, the aim is really to get a better smoothing, so you don't have this ramp up before retirement and then a worse off position or vice versa. Um, and what it basically comes down to is that every salary increase is used to balance their current net income versus their net income in retirement. What is quite interesting, looking at the same scenario as the, as the first one, margin of 3%, i.e. salary increase is slightly lower than expected, still your contribution rate reduces, but it doesn't drop down to zero. Um, it, the, the, the impact of the, um, of the uh, difference of, of targeting a net replacement ratio on the contribution rate is very much subdued. 
What is nice is that at retirement, this individual actually gets to that 91% net replacement ratio. Similarly, if actual salary increases are higher than expected, as this individual gets closer to retirement, they will be using more and more of that salary increase to increase their contribution rate. And basically, at retirement, they get to that 91% replacement ratio as well. So they actually manage to meet exactly what they're targeting and what, they, um, what their target outcome will be. Now, the, the interesting thing about this and, and what really got me thinking is we need to stop thinking about salary increases as one thing and then contribution rates as another and, and trying to use a gross placement ratio or projected number as trying to balance these things. Salary increases should really be viewed as something that can be used in part to finance current, current standard of living, but then also setting aside the rest of it to improve the um, standard of living in retirement. So a high salary increase is no longer this nice boost to your standard of living right now at the cost of um, having to go back down again at retirement, but actually using that to fund both the um, current and post-retirement standard of living. So I think the key messages would be, we've spoken about it, considering the information being provided to the individual when setting the assumptions. Um, then encouraging trustees to move away from a net replacement ratio or alternatively get them to think about uh, a gross replacement ratio that takes into account the contribution rates. Um, obviously, we would want to see this kind of targeting happening at individual level, and that would be the, the aim of an individualized retirement outcome projection tool. But when, when we talk to trustees, and they have to look at the membership as a whole, at least get them to start thinking about gross replacement ratios, the contribution rate, and the interaction of these two. So they don't blindly go with a 75% um, target. But then also, you know, taking things further, understandable communication with the correct target to individuals. Um, I think we are in a position to influence that with um, our board of trustees. Um, and then also things like getting the timing right. If, once that individual is spending that salary increase, it's gone. They're never going to use that to increase their contribution rate and take a dip on their net income. So encourage the HR um, guys to really start looking at coinciding these things and communicating to individuals the impact of that salary increase and how they can apply it to find both their current standard of living as well as their, um, their, their post-retirement standard of living. And then very importantly, just the how-to guide. Make it as easy as possible for members to go and implement these changes. Great. That's it very briefly from me. I hope it was... Um, was useful. Um, Tommy, you're going to take us through some practical examples. Um, thank you very much, Neil, Costa, and Natasha. Um, I had a, myself and Maurice did a session at the Pensions Conference, and uh, I'm not going to add much new, but I think um, presenters asked me to recap on some of the issues because it makes it a bit more practical. But what I was, what I am very excited about is after our discussion yesterday at Joanna's session, um, I, I think the important bit would be after we finish and we start the discussion as to what we can do. Because I see there is a move to start doing something. We've been quiet, I think, for a long time, but I think now is the time to start doing something. Um, Marius has mentioned that the regulator is also looking to provide some guidance on on um, projections and how it should be done. So what I'll show is just a few examples of what is currently being done. Um, touch hopefully a bit on what, what is the good things to do and to include in it. Um, and hopefully that would inspire you to, where you are involved, to start adding 
a bit to the conversation. You know, I think the discussion about um, consumption replacement ratio or something just a bit different that, that, that gets the conversation within the Board of Trustees going to help them to understand or to talk, talk about how to communicate what they're aiming towards um, uh, and, and, and what to do about it. Are they in a benefit statement or some sort of interactive tool, uh, an app or anything like that? I think the, the important thing is to get engagement from the, from the members. Um, and also when to do it. I think there's an urgency to start doing something. Because I mentioned, we haven't got the safety net of other countries with the social security benefits um, that, are, that can make a substantial difference in your life. So this is the one pot of money that, that needs to be um, uh, saved and, and utilized at retirement. Um, this is a, uh, an example of basic information. It communicates a replacement ratio with some basic information as to um, assumptions and what was done. And I think the, the useful thing here is that number is consistently communicated from year to year in the benefit statement. So hopefully a person can start engaging with and say, has it moved or not? But I think we all know that very few people really look at it. And as we discussed yesterday, you know, if, if that number is below 50%, then people just switch off and say, well, I'm in trouble. Just, just, uh, the depth varies a bit, but um, I, I can't do anything about it. So I think that engagement as to how to move things a bit forward is, is important. And I'll show a bit a few things that, that, that people are trying to do to, to get that um, move uh, or something to be done on the members' side. Um, the basic robot type um, visualization is, is uh, well used. Um, this is an example. You've got the safety zone at the top, which would have been green, and amber warning zone, and the red is a danger zone. This person is at a 12% replacement ratio. Also, you can see communicated not as a replacement ratio, but saying that um, you'll get 12% of your salary at retirement. Um, and then the target is to set at 75 again. Um, and then another robot example, slight definition of what's happening in the different zones and where you are. Um, another one, also green, uh, there's a bit more information here. Um, what I liked about this one, and again, it's a lot of information, so we can think, is a member really going to read this and more than read it, start doing anything about it. But the information is there. Um, you'll see at the bottom right there um, is to state the assumption that this is on the assumption that you're going to stay in employment and continue saving throughout your working life. Um, and the dangers of taking money um, and not, not um, preserving your, your, your retirement savings when you, when you leave jobs maybe. So I think that's one message that if we... The, better we can communicate that, the, uh, the better it would be for, me, for the member. Um, and also, you know, we can communicate replacement ratios till we blue in the face. If a member leaves a job and he's not been sensitized not to take that money and use it, you know, all our calculations are for nothing. Retirement calculators are fairly common. It's normally hidden in a website somewhere. Um, so I think the information is provided, and us is actually say we're doing the calculations, we've given the calculator and the, and the um, calculation basis to the administrator, but again, is it really being used in the right way? The information is there, and we can talk about assumptions, and assumptions can be set, but um, again, is there engagement and is there action from the member side? 
One exciting way, and again, something I think that, that gives us now an opportunity to, to put some more energy and excitement into this is the use of mobile technology. Um, an app shouldn't be that difficult to develop, and some companies are already doing it. It's something that you keep at hand. It can immediately communicate the information that we think is important and valuable. Again, some sort of replacement ratio or some sort of a target, and that can be um, in hand on a, on, a, on a daily basis. So um, that is something I think that we can also use to, to, to bump up the excitement on communication to members in this regard. Um, this, this, for, this, for example, is the, the um, gray, blue, and yellow bars show the replacement ratios on the three different investment return assumptions. So again, the range that, was, that is being given. Another example, sorry, it's a bit fuzzy, but um, three different investment return assumptions and showing the, you the replacement ratios that you can achieve at different ages. Um, a bit more practical is this part of the benefit statement that we now show you again on the three scenarios, but highlighting the middle one, which is the expected scenario. And we can argue maybe a bit more effective way of communicating what is your annual pension in today's money term going to be? So something that's a bit more practical that you can understand, is it enough or not? So I think the danger of a replacement ratio, we working with it on a regular basis, but for the member, doesn't, doesn't mean much. But if you tell him you're going to earn 10,000 rands a month um, and he knows he needs 30, you know, that, that's something that may lead to action. And I think that should be our, our aim. So this is an example of showing current value of money in a, in a, in a, um, in a current money term. I think even, even showing a, an annual salary, again, disassociates a bit because most people probably be thinking about monthly salaries. You know, what, what do I need per month to live? So shouldn't that be a monthly one to start connecting with? Um, what's nice about this as well is there's two new measures that's added to say, well, if you want to do something to improve your situation, what can you do? Um, the middle row there talks about the extra contributions needed um, uh, to, um, to, to, to improve your situation. And the last one says, well, until what age do you need to work to improve your situation? No, I think we, uh, few people can choose to work until 70. The employer may, want, may have a say about that. But uh, again, it just anything to get people to think there's something that needs to be done as long as they can get the target, um, connect with the target and start engaging with it. Um, this is an interesting one. And we talk about the dangers of communicating the lump sum or the current asset value in, in our retirement pot. But to be fair, that's the way that I look at it. Um, if I, I, I like to think about a multiple of salary. We know an annuity rate at age 65, what's it about allowing for some growth and maybe a spouse's pension, maybe 12, 15? Um, so if, you, if I look at my annual salary that I need at uh, age 65, then I'd multiply it by about 15, and then I'd have a target. You know, and then I say, okay, I need 5 million or 10 million. That's, that, that's going to be enough for me. And I think the value of looking at a lump sum or even a multiple, I'll get into this one just now, is that's the number, we can argue against it, but that's the number that the person see on a regular basis. For a young person, it's maybe far off. Um, he may see 200,000 and his target may be 5 million. But for somebody that gets, I think, above 40, you know, that starts becoming something that you can look at and say, well, she, I'd be aiming at, 
at 5 million. And then also it takes away the, the danger of that 2 million lying there and you're thinking, she, the core, that core value was 100, was 1 million, you know, I can buy the core and then I've got a million left, you know. Take away that connection with consumption and replace it with my target is 5, so 2 is not enough, what can I do to improve it? Um, this one, uh, the, the trustees, and I think this has come over a period of years where they've decided, I think they also use a 75% replacement ratio, and then they've converted that at the at different retirement ages. We're looking at 60 and, uh, 55, 60, and 65 to a multiple of salary. Um, so you'll see that the multiple of salary is 14 for somebody aged 55. Now, 14, you know, is too low for an annuity rate, but that already incorporates the 75 cent replacement ratio. So now a person can take his salary, multiply it by 14, and he's got something, another measure that, that may be um, more practical for some people. The, the different color bars show what has been achieved or what's expected to be achieved on the projected basis and what, what's the shortfall. So I think the lump sum target has got value in it, um, especially because people are already connected to that. And I think if we can take this thing out of the five million is a lot of money, and saying you're aiming at ten, you know that that can have value. Um, again, uh, what 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 do you need? What is the additional contribution rate required um, to get to that that target? So there's again a, a call to action here. If 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 you're not, if the sixty percent is not too daunting for you. <laughs> um, this is, I think, a European benefit statement that I also liked because of the simplicity. And again, you'll see. At normal, at normal retirement age, value in today's money, 280,000 euros. That, that's your target. Can you live off that or not? You know, again, simple question. You can look at it and you can hopefully try and do something about it if it's, if it's insufficient. One other way that I think we should also encourage uh, from the Board of Trustees side where we may have an influence is to try and get the employer to also engage with us through the Board of Trustees maybe, but that could be done by giving them information on the expected replacement ratios of the, of the members in their fund. If they see everybody is going to retire on grossly inadequate um, pensions, that may cause the responsible employer to invest something in financial education, you know, telling people not to um, waste their money when they leave jobs or incorporate some additional savings at, at a higher level, maybe providing a tool that they can add the other savings into it and put a, a combined pot together for them to connect and say, well, what is my total situation um, going to be? So the employee engagement, I think, is an important Thing that we can add value, and again, through our calculations in the pension fund, we can provide effective communication to the employer. Um, this is a, one example of a basic information to the employer, showing the different replacement ratios where members are going to be um, retiring at, and how many members in that, in that category. So you can see um, the bulk of the members, 39 out of the 60 members, are retiring on 21 to 40% replacement ratios. Hopefully the employer sees there's a problem here and uh, it does something about it. In a graphical way, there's a plot of the replacement ratios. I like the scale there, you know, you'll see the 100% is at the, in the middle, so, <laughs> so it, uh, there's one member at 175%. Um, and again, so this is examples of actual employer communication going out to employers, um, showing them what's happening in their fund.
or the I'm saying to the trustees, if really. Um, just a few more slides. Um, often, I see some companies starting to target their communication, and this is one way we one one administration firm is sort of putting the different their members in sort of groups to communicate more effectively. You'll see at the bottom there, or on the, on the left-hand side, the young hopefuls. This is people that are still young, medium affluence, for example. They, they've got a different way of, that you need to communicate to them than the person who's close to retirement, um, you know, your silver pensions, you know. So, so I think in, segment, in segmenting your membership, um, and then having a target to communicate to that specific block, you know, that's also got a valuable, um, I think, uh, something that I saw that I think could be useful. This is an example of a benefit statement. It's not the front page, but one of the uh, pages in the benefit statement. Uh, this is for a 50-plus member. And the information here is specifically what should you do in your situation to start preparing for retirement, both in terms of saving a bit more, maybe consumption, some tax issues, you know, so by communicating effectively to different groups and recognizing that there are different people in your, in your fund, I think that can also help our communication and hopefully our, that engagement with members. Um, just flip through these quickly. This is a few slides from Marius from um, uh, the pensions conference. We mentioned these are some of the issues that they are looking at to... Um, to require in benefit statements, you know, um, they, they would probably require that a replacement ratio be shown, um, present value of pension as well, um, and then, you know, the impact on of additional contributions or different retirement ages maybe. So that's some information, and I think the message is that the regulator is looking at bringing in guidance that we would have to comply with. So let's take the lead here and start doing the right thing before it's forced upon us. Um, and also we will plan to add to the conversation once uh, the regulator starts becoming serious about it. Um, again, disclosure. Um, I think one of the international organizations recommend that traffic light approach. But I think we should aim to try and be ahead. You know, I think the discussion yesterday after the consumption replacement rate was interesting. And if we start applying some of those issues, we'll be, I think we'll be leading the, the way rather than just complying. Um, and then the, the projection assumptions may well be prescribed um, to, to, to give some consistency between pension funds. And I think that's what I've got. Um, I will leave, there's about 15 minutes for us left for discussion. So Costa, Natasha, I don't know who's going to lead the discussion there. But thank you very much for your attention. Appreciate it. on. Um, thank you very much. I, I need to earn my living. You, you mentioned me. I'll talk back. Um, so a couple of, of comments. I've been thinking about what people said yesterday in, in my session as well. And what I'm getting to increasingly is maybe we need to take more responsibility as boards of trustees and actuaries to actually make these decisions for members and stop saying things like we need to persuade members to make good decisions for themselves. It's clearly not working. There's behavioral biases that we can't combat. 
And there seems to be this hands-off, well, but we can't possibly force people to do anything. And I'm not, there's a default space where you don't have to force people, where you default people smartly. Um, what somebody said about uh, using salary increase times to, 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 to implement defaults gradually. But that is the role of an actuary to, to, to shape these, these savings. I mean, what you were showing, Neil, looks like a defined benefit fund. Um, you know, adjust the contributions as we go. So let's do that and not... I mean, asking the member to do that is, is, is crazy. Um, another comment that I keep coming back to is that most of our members will be retiring 20 to 40 years from now, and we have no idea what retirement will look like then, and we're still aiming for this world of they're going to do, you know, they, they're going to experience retirement like our, our retirees today, and I don't think they will. I think they'll be doing lots of different things, and we don't know what those things are, and how do we even devise a system that works? I think they'll be working later, they'll be living longer, there's phased retirement, there's bridge employment, there's return to work, there's entrepreneurial things, there's all sorts of stuff. How do we work that in? And then the last one is that regulations are not helping us. I'm trying to get flexible contributions in my fund going, and I need to register every single contribution rate that I'm trying to every single one so and and the, the guys at the administration are saying let's let's not do this please because this is like going to cause us nightmares i'm like let's fix this let's talk to them so that's enough now uh, if I could make just comments, just comments. i think that the first thing about making this He makes the point that if you want to make things easy for members, remove obstacles, make it easy. Uh, look for you to achieve things for members, make it easy. Um, and quite frankly, I think that's what we need to do. Um, in, the, in, in the old days where we had defined benefit regimes, um, we never used to communicate fund values actually. Um, the actual reserve value communication arose out of these transfer values from DB to DC. Um, the statements that we used to get were just around the income values. You know, that, that kind of point. Thank you. 
things that each of you must have is some flexibility to pay for that and a system that can accommodate those changes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think I, when Tommy was talking about the lump sums, my sense is that people like to see lump sums. So what scope is there for us to, rather than showing an income or replacement ratio, say this is the lump sum you should have and calculate it as a present value of their future in, in exactly the same way. We have these Section 18 schemes in DB funds where if, if the employer is underfunded or if the scheme is underfunded, this is your three-year plan or your six-year plan or your nine-year plan. Why can't we communicate in the same way because members like to see lump sums, so they, you know, you need to get 300,000 more by in the next three years or the next year or whatever, and this is how to do it. Yeah, I agree with you because I think you can relate to that. You know, you can relate to I want to say 200,000 for a car, I want to say 50,000 for a house holiday, whatever. It's it's hard to achievable. Well, they can relate to. I agree. And the reason I feel that is, and I'm quite strong in my view of that, I, I just don't think we've got the sort of levels of financial sophistication to understand all those concepts. Um, and, and where you work in the market, people are not preserving on a compulsory basis. I really think that those concepts are misunderstood. Um, um, and possibly you might end up in a situation where um, it's almost too big a lump sum to achieve. I'm not suggesting my view is right and Ashley is wrong. I just think that the debate has to be had. I don't actually think that the commission properly considered it, and I don't think we've necessarily um, dealt with you know, whether various methods of communication should be. But I, you know, my view is communicate with lots of money, just encourages the wrong behavior and the wrong obsession. I've always agreed with thanks with communicating income. I've always agreed with that. But what I've found is that so being now lecture in the lecturing space, what I've found is that the students really struggle with the concept of today's money terms. So if our students who have gone through matric and have had studied first year actuarial science still don't understand the concept of inflation, real money, today's money terms, how how do we expect members with no financial sophistication to understand that? I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make is to, to say that we need to find that one measure that we communicate and that will, that's the ultimate and we use that we use that for everyone who doesn't much good or what they do for a living. Um, there's no way that you can communicate the same type of information to, for example, a fisherman is what you communicate to a CEO. And communication is tailored for audience. Um, it's, it's the case with any kind of communication, it's tailored for audience. So, Yes, absolutely. Probably has got its place um, for a certain type of audience. Um, those who may be oldest financially astute and understand. Um, but, you know, for a different audience, it might be something that you do. That's what I think. There is something that's an opportunity for research. You know, because we actually do all the numbers, but you know, people who read it are totally different from us. Uh, sometimes I was 
or some people in the industry, he could be a calculation, he just be a number that you already feel accountable. So I think there is a behavioral science thing that we should connect to people that 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 need to do some experiments and say, well, what what touches people and helps them to, to do something about it. Um, and also on the technology side of the UK, some of the people that we work with day to day in in the view that Apple now um, bring in a trigger that if a person sees that they uh, that they are they need to put more money in, is in place there for you to say, yes, I want to do something about it. So put another one percent in. And even though that doesn't cause an automatic deduction next month, it goes straight through to the admin side. And that can then just be confirmed through the last resort. But just getting um, us closer to action and drawing from talking into action. Thank you. I think it's a shame on the profession if you, if you take, like, it's more than 20 years ago when we had the Big Bang conversion from DV to DC. But those years he worked for the benefit of the employer as well as the consultants because we made some money out of it. It's now 20 years later and now we're trying to assist. Remember, one of your important points in communication to members is that DB funds is simple to understand. It's 40 times 2%, 80%. DC funds is complex to understand for members. It's now 20 years later, and now we're trying to assist the members. And we all know, the, the other point, we all know one of our biggest problems is the lack of preservation. But is it correct to aim for 75% of retirement, ignoring the fact that the bulk of the members will take part of their retirement benefit in cash? They can end up with a lower uh, ratio. I think what I'm basically saying, if you take the last slide of Tommy, what we communicate to members, what is missing there is the effect of taking some cash and what do you do with your cash at retirement. Thank you very much to the panelists. Um, I think some very important ideas that were discussed. To me, uh, when it comes to a DC fund, the question really is what is the optimal allocation of capital? That's an economic idea. So how do you allocate capital in the most efficient manner in a DC fund? There's two things that I think about. Number one is cost reduction. So you have to make sure that the costs in that fund are as low as possible. And in my experience, in retirement funds, costs actually are much higher 
than trustees or members actually think they are, especially in umbrella funds as well. The second way in which you allocate capital most efficiently is through investment return. And that's actually extremely important. And sometimes the problem I see is that we think about DC funds in a DB way. So what that means is that we create artificial constraints on a DC fund by thinking in a DB way. How do we do that? Targeting a replacement ratio is a DB concept. A 70% replacement ratio comes from the DB environment. If we are investing, example, to actually get now a 70% replacement ratio, let's just say that means now we're targeting inflation plus four, we've actually destroyed value because we have created a constraint that is not there. The beauty of DC is DC is unconstrained. And to allocate capital efficiently, you need to get a, as high an investment return as possible, not necessarily a target investment return. Um, so I think where we as actuaries can add value is by showing the impact on investment strategies, cost strategies, uh, management strategies, on benefits uh, through our projections, um, by showing them, if you go for this investment strategy, this is what your outcome will be. If you have this cost strategy or this, uh, uh, this approach, this is what your outcome will be. Um, but I think we shouldn't uh, create artificial constraints when they actually are not there because we want to impose a DB idea. Well, I think we've gone out of time, so thanks to everyone for their contributions.